You might recall that last week in this section of Luke that Jesus was addressing this rich young ruler as he came to Jesus. And he was young. He, he was very successful. Uh, he is something that the world would look at and really uh, enamored with and, and be envious of and desire to be like. Uh, it is something that even the church would look at and say how blessed that man was. Look at him. He's wealthy. He's healthy. He's of influence. He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was religious. But there was something that was lacking in his life. And he comes to Jesus. Mark's narrative tells us that he came and he bowed before Jesus and asked him, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing that man's heart, would uh, say that what you're to do is that you are to give away your riches and then come and follow me. And the young man went away very sorrowful, as we read. And the reason that he did, Jesus was putting his finger on something that was wrong in his life. The reason that you lack is because of coveting. The reason that you lack is because your wealth, your possessions are really possessing you. They are possessing your heart. They're captivating your heart. They are a priority in your life. And you recall that Jesus, he's been addressing that very issue as we've been going over to these chapters, even in Luke chapter 16, that it tells us that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And when Jesus would tell them that, listen, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus did not say that you can't have money and God. He said you cannot serve money and God because you're going to hate the one and you're going to love the other. So you can't do that. It's not going to work. And those religious leaders who thought that the blessing of God was because, you know, we are wealthy, that being wealthy was a sign of God's blessing and approval and, and we're, you know, spiritual. Jesus said what you see is, you know, uh, good and approved by God, your wealth and possessions, there's a problem, and it's an abomination to the Lord because it was a priority in their life. And this rich young ruler was coveting. He was one that he was holding on to his possessions. And so the Lord is putting something, you know, in his life that needed to go. Well, when he went away sorrowful, of course, Jesus then turned to his disciples and said in verse 25 that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when they heard Jesus say that, they said, then who can be saved? Because that was the mindset and the teaching of the day. That again, possessions and wealth and riches were a sign of God's blessing and God's approval of you. And you see, it was them saying, then who can be saved? It's interesting in Mark's gospel that Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus looked at that man and loved him. And he would then turn to his disciples as that rich young ruler went away sorrowful, and he would say, children, children, how difficult it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. So there was a problem he was trusting in his riches at that point. It is interesting, kind of the mindset of the day, because you can read some of the Jewish writings. The Mishnah would say that poverty was worse than the curses that came upon Egypt. And then the Talmud would, uh, another Jewish source, forbid a Jew to give away his earthly possessions. So as Jesus is dealing with that rich young ruler, he turns to his disciples. He says, it's easier that a literal camel go through the eye of a literal needle. 
It's not the interpretation that perhaps you've heard that there was a needle gate in Jerusalem, and if you got a camel down on his knees, kind of a little gate that one person could go through when they shut the main gates to Jerusalem at the Sabbath or in the evening. But you can get that camel through if you push and strive and get him through on his knees and all of this. He says with, with you know, man, it's impossible. But with God, it is possible. In other words, whether you're rich or you're poor, salvation, eternal life that he's asking about, with man it's impossible. We cannot save ourselves. And a lot of people think that if they just push and strain and strive and do enough that I can make my way into heaven. I can enter into the gates of heaven. And that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying with man it's impossible, but with God it is possible because in a few weeks, in a short time from what he is saying to this rich young ruler and to his disciples, he's going to go to a cross and he's going to die for sinful humanity. And three days later, he's going to rise from the grave. And now it is possible for any of us to come to him, to be forgiven and receive salvation, which most of us have done that are here listening to this message. With God, it is possible what he's provided for you and for me. So then, after that conversation, Peter then pipes up. And let's pick up our text in in verse 28. And he says, see, we've left all and followed you. And Lord, we're not rich. We've left everything to follow you. We've left all. So Jesus said to them in verse 29, As surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time, and in the age to come, eternal life. So as you follow the flow of what Luke has been writing here, Peter watching Jesus deal with this rich young ruler, and that young man went away sorrowful. Jesus then tells his disciples, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God who trust in his riches, because the tendency is that they trust in their riches, and they don't think that they need God. But the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. So Peter pipes up and he says, well, we've left all to follow you. What is it that we're going to get? Lord, we're not like that rich young ruler who is unwilling to pay the price. And Jesus answers, you're going to receive many times more in this life and in eternal life. Now, again, Mark's gospel records that Jesus tells them that you're going to receive a hundredfold now in this time. So what is Jesus saying to them? He is telling them that you're going to be blessed. You're going to be tended and well taken care of. You're part of the kingdom. And don't forget that the real reward is going to come when you get to heaven. In walking with the Lord. In following after the Lord. And in serving the Lord. Know that you may lose out in this life. And you see those disciples and many other Jewish believers, the church that began in Jerusalem and spread to Judea and then Samaria to the ends of the earth, those Jewish believers, they lost a lot. They would be persecuted. They would lose their family. Their family would would ostracize them and have no more relationship with them. They would even in Jewish homes hold a funeral for you if you made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And it was very hard and it was very difficult 
And I want you to know, as Jesus is saying, you're going to be blessed in this life. You're going to be blessed in eternal life, certainly, as Romans chapter 14 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, that we are going to stand before the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, and we're going to be given rewards, what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. And you see, you're going to be rewarded for serving Christ, walking with him, the things that you have done for him. And it's a wonderful promise that we have, but they needed to know that the Lord was going to take care of them because in a short time, they would take that gospel out, and they would be persecuted, and they would be held out at arm's length, and they would lose their relationships. There was a breach in with their families. And here Jesus is saying that as you follow after me, you, you leave house and parents and brothers and wife or children. You see, they would lose their inheritance. Jesus says, I'm going to take care of you. You know, some of you have experienced that, haven't you? That there's been a breach with your family, that your family has disowned you, maybe because of your commitment to Jesus Christ, or that at least they hold you out at arm's length, or they make fun of you, or they come down on you. Maybe it was with old friends. Maybe it's cost you and at the workplace and promotions or those coming against you, whatever the case may be. And hear what Jesus is saying, that you may be persecuted in this world. You may lose brother and sister and mother, but you are going to gain the family of God a hundredfold. Now, what Jesus is not saying, that the prosperity teachers will come along and they'll try to use what Mark says, that you'll gain a hundredfold. And they'll say, see, Jesus is saying, if you plant and give me my ministry a dollar, you're going to get a hundredfold back. Just plant your seed faith, brother, sister. Give it to me, to my ministry, and you'll get a hundredfold back. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. And he is not saying that some, a few have suggested that this section of chapter 18 to mean that you have to take a vow of poverty, give everything away, and isolate yourself, and be monks and hermits. What Jesus is saying is this. As you freely follow him, that the kingdom of God is going to be open to you, not that you're suddenly going to be winning the lottery or become a millionaire, but as you center your life around Jesus, you are going to gain the family of God a hundredfold. And again, there are some of you, that many of you, that you can say that I'm closer to my brothers and sisters in the Lord than I am to my actual family because they don't want to talk to me. They don't want to hear about Jesus. There's this, you know, you know, wall that is there. Relationships are severed and even suffer greatly because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. But you belong to the family of God, and you look around at all the brothers and sisters that we have, and it's glorious to realize that we are one big family of God, isn't it? And maybe you've been alienated from your blood relatives or from old friends as a result of your commitment to the Lord. But we've come into such a broader family. And Jesus look, says, look, no one has left these things, but what they are going to receive a hundredfold, and you'll be rewarded. You'll be rewarded, Peter. You're coming into something that is so glorious. The writer of Hebrews, you know, the writer of Hebrews writing to those first century Hebrew believers, that it was hard for them because they had lost their family. They had lost their inheritance. They, you know, would look at the temple 
and the people still coming up for the feast and the temple worship, and they missed all of that. So the writers of Hebrews is reminding them, listen, this thing that you're a part of is something so wonderful. Jesus is superior. And remember that he's building a temple, a living temple that is greater than the temple that you see and miss. That temple would be destroyed a few years after the book of Hebrews was written. But even as Peter would say that there's this holy habitation made of living stones, you and me, that is building this this holy temple unto the Lord. We're being fitted together. And it is a blessing. Listen, I pray that you never forget what a blessing it is to be a part of the body of Christ, to belong to the kingdom of God. This rich young ruler, he had everything that the world would look at and would desire and said that he would have it made. That's what the world would say. But he comes and he says, what is it that I lack? He's lacking something. And I think he's asking the Lord sincerely. And he's got, you know, that hole in his heart. And he's hurting. And he's saying, what is it that I lack? I'm empty. What is it that I lack? There's a problem. And you're letting the things of your life have a grip on your heart, your possessions. And he went away sorrowful because... He didn't have the riches of Christ. You know, just a little side note, kind of interesting about that story. You can read just a few commentators and Bible teachers that have suggested, like the late Ray Steadman, that suggested that the rich young ruler was Mark himself, who penned the Gospel of Mark. Mark kind of puts in this, this little personal note that Jesus loved him, kind of like he puts in that little personal note that he loved me. I could, I could see it in his eyes. Now, we don't know for sure. It's just a suggestion. We know that there's some hints in the scripture that Mark came from a wealthy family. And it was his mother that provided the upper room for the disciples to pray at. So I wonder, I think, you know, could it be that he went away sorrowful, but then he realized that, you know what, Jesus is right. And I want to do what Jesus told me to do. And I'm going to give away everything, and I'm going to follow him. And then we hear of a little side note in, in the Garden of Gethsemane that Mark writes. It's not in any of the other Gospels of a young man that the soldiers grabbed and grabbed his, his tunic, you know, and uh, he runs off naked into the night. And many have suggested, most scholars actually believe, that was John Mark. That he can't, he's there, and he's kind of on the outskirts, and he's watching, and all of a sudden he gets caught up in the arrest of Jesus, and they grab his tunic, and he's the first streaker recorded in the Bible as he runs off. But I just wonder, I just wonder, folks, we can't say dogmatically at all, if he went away and he said, you know, he's right, my Lord is right, he loves me, and I'm going to give it away, and I'm going to follow after him. He even lost his tunic. And he would be used in the early church. He traveled with Paul in that first missionary journey. And then Paul, at the end of his life, would say, send John Mark to me. He's useful. So here is a reminder for you and for me that you may not have a lot of possessions or money, but you have Christ and you have the blessings of Christ. And you see, those of the world, they don't have that. They don't have that that peace that you and I have that passes understanding. They don't have that joy unspeakable. 
They don't feel fulfilled and satisfied like you and me because they're drinking of the water of the world. And remember, it was Jesus that said that if you drink of that water, he said to the Samaritan woman, you're thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I have to give, you'll never thirst again. Come to me, all who thirst. And drink of me, and out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water, as he cried out there from the temple in Jerusalem. Come and eat of me of the living bread that came from heaven. And if you believe in me, you'll never hunger and thirst again. We are blessed people because most of all, we have Christ, but we have each other. We belong to the family of God. And we're going to be blessed now in this life as we have the promises of God and the people of God around us. And certainly going to be blessed in eternal life as we stand before him to be rewarded what we have done in the body, whether good or bad, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, in serving him. And living for him and pleasing him with our lives. Well, then he takes his disciples, the 12 aside, verse 31, and he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So he takes his disciples aside and he says, Behold, it's a word that is used in Luke's gospel, which means, behold, consider this. Look at this carefully. This is really important. And he says to his disciples, I'm going to ascend to Jerusalem. Concerning the Son of Man, all things written, not just by the prophets, but through the prophets is a better translation. In other words, God wrote through the prophets to the page. You see, a verse that you and I need to remember is Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Timothy, he's telling young Timothy, you must continue in the scriptures that you have known from childhood. And know this, Timothy, that all scripture, all scripture, that means from Genesis to Revelation, is inspired by God, which means inspired, God-breathed, inspired by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that every, you know, Everyone may be thoroughly equipped for good work. And you see, it's important for us to understand because I'm hearing more and more in the church that there are those who will say, well, we kind of dismiss. We don't really talk about that or that sin or that carnality because Jesus didn't really address it directly. It didn't come from the words of Jesus. And, and the other writings of the New Testament came from men. Don't believe that. It was written by God through those men, those holy men, that they were right to the page. It's all inspired by God. And if you hear anybody say, well, you know, we can take the words of Jesus and believe it, but the rest of it, you know, we can't really believe or it's open to interpretation, I would suggest that you put your tail between your legs and you get out of there and don't come back. If you ever hear a pastor or a ministry leader say that, it is all inspired by God, and that's a very dangerous place to be. So we can take what the Word of God says from Genesis to Revelation, and here, as we see that they're in the Jordan Valley, 1,300 feet below sea level, they're going to make that 20-mile journey up to Jerusalem, which is 2,300 feet above sea level. So you have an ascent of 3,600 feet in 20 miles. They're walking as a steep climb. They're going from a place that it's springtime that's warm all winter long and into the spring to a place that is cool. And Jesus says that when we get there, what has been spoken of and written through the prophets are going to be fulfilled. 
I will be delivered to the Gentiles by the religious leaders, and they're going to mock me, and they're going to beat me, and they're going to spit on me, and we're going to go up to Jerusalem. And you're going to be stepping into the pages of the prophets. Psalm 22, written a thousand years before the the crucifixion of Jesus. There's David, that amazing prophetic psalm that is written there as he's writing and speaking of Jesus, all fulfilled by Jesus. The things that were taking place at his crucifixion, what Jesus was feeling as David writes, they pierced my hands and my feet and all of my bones are out of joint and they divide my garments. It's an amazing psalm. Isaiah, speaking about the suffering Messiah 700 years before the crucifixion. In Isaiah 53, as many of you know, as he writes, inspired by God, that he was a lamb that was led to the slaughter as a sheep before its shears. And all the iniquity of us all were laid upon him. Everything's going to be fulfilled. Matthew in his gospel has 99 Old Testament quotations 38 times he writes that it might be fulfilled. And I'm going to come again. And even as I will be put to death, I'm going to rise again. As David would wrote in, and he would write in Psalm 16, for you shall not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's all going to happen. Jesus would tell the religious leaders there in Jerusalem that you search the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. As you go through the Old Testament, it speaks of Jesus, points to Jesus. It's fulfilled by Jesus. And the disciples here When he said that to the religious leaders, didn't understand. Here Jesus has been speaking and talking about for the last six months, ever since Caesarea Philippi in the northern part of the country where Peter made his confession. They just do not understand because read verse 34 as we read it. Their reaction is they did not, they understood none of these things. First of all, this saying was hidden from them. Second of all, and they did not know the things that were spoken. Thirdly. It was like they were trying to figure out and understand and know what Jesus is saying from three different angles, but they just cannot connect the points. They cannot bridge the gap between here is the Son of God. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Not so, Lord. And so they are just in the fog right now and will continue to be so. They cannot bridge that gap between the Son of God, the one that is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the one who's working miracles and and showing great signs and great power through his working, and you're going to die? They're still arguing these disciples and will continue to do so. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And next chapter, chapter 19, as they leave Jericho and begin to ascend, it says that the people have this expectation that he's going to usher in when he gets to Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. And it would not be until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they understood. And they would begin to write about it, even as Peter would write about it in, towards the end of his life in 1 Peter chapter 1. He writes, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold 
from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Earlier in the chapter, he writes that we have a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus would go to that cross, and they understood that, oh, he's the suffering Messiah. That's what the prophet spoke about, that he came not to free us from the tyranny of Rome, but to free us from the greater bondage, and that is sin. He is going to come back, and he's going to rule and reign. But we've been freed from sin. But they didn't understand that at this point. So Jesus making his way through Jericho, we read in verse 35, Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that, that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus, passing through Jericho in the Jordan Valley, is about ready to make that ascent up to Jerusalem. As Jesus is passing by, Luke tells us that there were certain blind men that was by the road begging. Now, Matthew and Mark also tell of this same story. Matthew, who is an eyewitness, tells us that there were two blind men that were crying out to Jesus. Then you have, with Mark and Luke, they focus on this one blind man. Mark even names him. Mark names him. He says, that's blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, which means that he was probably well known in the early church. Again, Mark had a way of doing that. He had a way of naming names. Like, for example, at the crucifixion of Jesus, as he's carrying that cross, and he, he collapses under the weight of the cross, and the Roman put a spear on the sh shoulder of of a man and, and put it there and said, you carry this man's cross. And it's Mark that says, that was Simon of Cyrene, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's like Mark is saying, you know these guys. That was Simon of Cyrene. He, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, who, by the way, are named in Romans chapter 16. So there's real good evidence here that as Mark says, oh yeah, this was blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. We know him. You, you know him. He's there in Jericho, and at this time, he's probably well known in the area of Jericho as well. He's begging by the road. Now in the Jordan Valley again, that as you're there in that city, it was a major trade you know, route for those who were traveling, caravans, those who were you know, that were going back and forth from northern Africa and from Egypt would come up through the Jordan Valley and then up into proconsular Asia. So there's a lot of caravans, there's a lot of travelers. And then what you have at this time is people are pouring into Jerusalem for the feast, that Jericho would be very busy. The Jordan Valley had a lot of travelers. As people were walking to Jerusalem, they would begin to make that ascent. They would sing the songs of ascent that you have in the book of Psalms there, those seven psalms towards the end. And, and they would sing those songs. It was a very exciting time. There's a lot of people that are out on the roads. And here is Bartimaeus that is there, and he's asking for money. He's begging for money because there was no hope. There was no help. 
There wasn't any disabilities. There wasn't any, you know, one there to help him. He, he had to be there. And those with physical infirmities were asking for alms as the people passed by. Now, just in case this comes up, if you're like me and you have to know these little details, it is interesting as you read the gospel accounts very carefully, it says Matthew and Mark tells us that Jesus was coming out of Jericho. Luke here says that he was coming near Jericho. And the reason that I mention that, because there are those who will come along and say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. You can't trust the Bible. The Bible's wrong. Listen, the Bible's not wrong. Because in this time, even as we see that the other two gospel writers will, you know, were telling us that Jesus was coming out of Jericho, there was the old Jericho, and then a mile away there was the new Jericho. There was the old Jericho that the walls fell down and it was cursed. There was a small population there. And then about a mile away, there's a new Jericho. And it was a winter resort. And it was like the Palm Springs of the ancient world. Herod had built a palace there. Uh, it was uh, lined with, with trees. It was very lush. They Along the, the walkways and the pathways and the streets, they lined it with sycamore trees. Remember that? Next week, when we see that there was a wee little man that climbed up, what, into the sycamore tree to see Jesus. Incredible story. You don't want to miss it. But it was more of a modern city of that day. It was more of a winter resort. There was even a, a population of priests and Levites that lived there. So Luke is telling us that he's coming out of, you know, Jericho and and the other two Gospels are telling that um, as, you know, he, he's, Luke's saying he's coming near the new Jericho. The other two are saying he's coming out of old Jericho. In other words, it's just a matter of perspective is what it is. And here are all these pilgrims and all these travelers. And Bartimaeus is there and he's begging. And people are passing by. And he knows that there's a lot of people. His hearing is good. But then he knows and he hears that there's really a big commotion He's sensitive to it. There's a large crowd. There seems to be this excitement. Something is happening. And Bartimaeus, bless his heart, he hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's probably thinking, what is it? Or he's hearing people, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's passing through. And, and Bartimaeus is going, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when you read the Gospels, Jesus healed every kind of sickness and disease, didn't he? The lame walked, the lepers were cleansed, he even raised the dead. But of the one healing that's recorded more than any other healing is he opened the eyes of the blind. And there is no doubt that Bartimaeus had heard about Jesus of Nazareth, had opened the eyes of the blind, and he hears this excitement. There's this huge multitude. He hears Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and Luke tells us he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd warned him. Matthew tells us that it was the multitude that was telling him, be quiet, shush, don't say anything, pipe down. But then as they did, he began to cry out all the more. That means that phrase that Luke uses means that he began to to cry out uncontrollably he's screeching son of David have mercy on me son of David have mercy on me he's yelling this through all the noise and the excitement of the crowd they're saying you be quiet we want to hear from him we want to see if he says anything and he just cries out more son of David Jesus son of David have mercy on me and blind Bartimaeus 
could actually see better than a lot of the people that were telling him to be quiet. Because son of David is a messianic term. And in saying that, he is owning Jesus as the Messiah. And I just wonder if Bartimaeus knew of Isaiah chapter 35 that speaks of the Lord's coming, that behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And blind Bartimaeus hears Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he begins to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet. No, I'm going to cry out more. Son of David, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Because he had heard how Jesus had opened the eyes of the blind. And this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It is now or never. And it truly was now or never because in a few days, Jesus is going to be up on that cross. And as we finish the story here, so Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. It tells us that Jesus stood still. Can you picture it? There's a great multitude. It's probably going kind of slow. And Jesus is walking. And and there's Bartimaeus sitting there. And Mark tells us he has his garment that's there that people would toss coins into. And what's going on? What's all the commotion? Jesus of Nazareth is passing through. And and perhaps standing up and he begins to yell, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, be quiet. No, have mercy on me. And all of a sudden the procession stops. And somebody comes over to Bartimaeus and says, he's calling for you. Matter of fact, I like what Mark says, that they came and they got Bartimaeus and said, the master's calling for you. Be a good cheer and arise. He's calling you. See, the master is calling for you. And maybe somebody is here this morning That as blind Bartimaeus was told to come to the master as he was being called, the Lord is calling you. Because you see, the Bible tells us that those who are unbelievers are blinded in this world. Paul wrote that to the Corinthian church. The natural man has been blinded by Satan. And you see, even as we have read that he's given or sang this morning, he's given us life. He has opened our eyes. And the Lord desires to open your eyes spiritually. He's calling you to himself to come and follow him, to give your life to him, to understand that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. And Jesus has provided that forgiveness for you as he went to that cross and he rose from the grave. And now you come to him to receive that forgiveness, to have a personal relationship with him. And your eyes are going to be opened up spiritually and you're going to be able to see But here's the thing. He's calling you whatever your need might be. And I just wonder, is somebody led Bartimaeus? Hey, Bartimaeus, be of good cheer. Arise. The master's calling you. And I wonder how long they led 
Bartimaeus to Jesus, you know, pushing through the crowd. The crowd is dividing, and they bring Bartimaeus. Was it 100 feet? Was it 200 feet? How far was it? We don't know. And all of a sudden, the hand lets go, and there's Bartimaeus there, and he's right in front of the creator of the universe. What do you want me to do for you? And perhaps the Lord is speaking to you. I know that he is. And as he calls you, he's saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? Because as his people, we come in with needs, don't we? We come in with hurts. We come in needing direction and guidance and strength. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Because he loves you and his promises are true for you. And we can say to him, Lord, I need that comfort. I need that guidance. I need this provision. I need this healing. Lord, I need to get rid of this bitterness. Lord, I need your help and desires to hear from you. Bartimaeus says, my sight, to receive my sight. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And it says immediately his eyes were opened up and he began to see. You can read an article on how complicated the eye is. Absolutely amazing. And Jesus opening his eyes is actually a work of creation to open up his eyes and immediately begin to see. But think about this. He opens his eye, and the very first thing that he sees is the face of his Savior and his Lord. He looked into the eyes of Jesus, into those eyes of love, and it would be the most beautiful thing that he would ever see. Bartimaeus would begin to follow Jesus. That's what Luke tells us. I believe he would follow Jesus into the new Jericho, and there's, you know, Zacchaeus, and then up to Jerusalem. And, and as he would go and see those, you know, sycamore trees lined up and all the fruit that's being grown and, you know, the winter resorts, the buildings, and go up to Jerusalem and the mountains and the canyons, and all of a sudden he sees the Mount of Olives and he sees the magnificent temple. None of it was as beautiful compared to when he looked into the face of Jesus. Listen. The Lord did not open up your eyes so you can keep those eyes focused on the things of the world and sin and carnality and pornography. As the author of Hebrews says, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, you keep your eyes on him because it's the most beautiful thing you'll ever see. And the things of this world are not in comparison to what the Lord has for you and his beauty and his grace and his love for you. And then one more point. It says when he followed Jesus, he left the garment. Left the garment behind. And it's amazing what People have left that Jesus called them. You remember Levi, Matthew. Jesus went up to him to the tax collecting table and said, stand up and follow after me. And it says that Levi immediately rose up and followed after him. Left his tax collecting table there. No longer going to work for the king of Rome. I'm going to go work and I'm going to serve the king of kings. It was James and John that were mending their nets there. And Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And it tells us one gospel account that they immediately followed him. They left their nets. So as we come full circle here this morning, is the Lord telling you to leave something behind that's keeping you from following after him? 
For the rich young ruler, it was his possessions. And he wasn't willing to leave it behind, at least at this point of Luke's gospel. But what is it that the Lord is telling you? It may not be riches at all. You may be thinking, what riches? I don't have two dimes to rub together. But is it something else? Is there some sin? Is there something that has captivated your heart that the Lord has been dealing with you? He says, I want you to leave it behind, and I want you to follow me wholeheartedly. And this morning, we can come to him in the honesty of our heart and say, Lord, there is. And Lord, I know I need to leave it behind because I want to fix my eyes on you, the author and finisher of my faith, the one for the joy that was set before you, that you endured the cross, despised the shame. And you're the one that has saved me. And you're the most beautiful thing in my life right now. Give it to the Lord. Leave it behind. Listen, the things of this world are going to leave you empty and dry and wanting and lacking and eventually death. Is there something that the Lord is saying, this has got to go and you need to follow me? As we go to the Lord, ask him. Say, Lord, and I know you've been dealing with me because you love me and I need to leave it behind. Help me to do that and to follow you with all of my heart. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word and this story of Bartimaeus who teaches us so much. And, Lord, I do pray, first of all, if there's anybody here that spiritually their eyes haven't been opened. In other words, they haven't come and surrendered their life to you. If there's anyone here that you're here in this place, you're listening on live stream, going to listen on this message on the radio later, that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, he's calling you, the master is calling you to follow after him. He has provided forgiveness of sin. He died on that cross for you, the perfect lamb of God. We're not redeemed with corruptible things of gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Foreordained before the foundation of the world that he would go to the cross for you. And he's here this morning. He's telling you he loves you. And he wants you to come to him and surrender your life to him, to be forgiven, to have the promise of eternal life, to come into right relationship with the Father. That's only through Jesus Christ. It's not through you, your efforts. It's not through a church. It's not through a pastor. It's not by being religious, by being sincere. It's by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, recognizing that you're a sinner. That's why Jesus says repent and coming to him and surrendering your heart and life to him. Today is the day of salvation. No one else died for you and rose from the grave, only Jesus. He proved that he's the son of God. He validated what he did. When he cried out, it is finished. I've done the work and I've paid the price. And if that's you, will you pray this prayer? The master's calling you. Rejoice. And you can pray, Jesus, I come to you. You are my salvation. I understand that. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose again. You're knocking on the door of my heart. You're alive, speaking to me. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to set my eyes on you and to know you 
to walk with you, to follow after you. And I thank you for this new beginning. Thank you for forgiving me and saving me in Jesus' name. Listen, as we're here being respectful, just as I've done in the other services, if you prayed that prayer, will you put your hand up? Put it back down. God bless you. Anybody else? Raising your hand doesn't save you, but just as Jesus called Bartimaeus publicly, that you're saying, I'm making a commitment for Christ right now. And if you're out in a coffee shop, you can raise your hand. Or if you're listening on live stream or on the radio, give us a call. But anybody else at all? And Father, I thank you for commitments made to you this morning for Christ. And I pray that they would be filled with your love and with your spirit and this new beginning that they have that their eyes have been open and they would see you clearly and learn of you and walk with you closely. Father, I also pray for those who are here that you have said this needs to be left behind and come follow me. Whatever it may be, that you would say to him, Lord, I'm going to leave it behind. I'm going to walk out of here being freed. I'm going to walk out of here with my eyes fixed on you and following you. And in the honesty of your heart, you give it to him, your life. And the things of the world no longer are going to captivate me, hold me in bondage, blind me, deceive me. But I'm going to have the joy of the Lord just as Bartimaeus by walking closely with you and abiding in you. Father, I pray for those who are desiring that, that you would help them. Minister your love and grace because your compassion fails not as we read. Father, I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way now. May we take you with us in our homes and in our workplace to be a light to others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.